Or I just chugged a whole Red Bull. I'm ready to go. Jesus. A day doesn't go by that I don't talk about Burt Reynolds. You know, oh, many days go by. I never think about Burt Reynolds. I think about him daily. <laughs> Junior? So, I already How did you get out of these loins? <laughs> Swear, boy! Man, that's probably my favorite Burt Reynolds movie, Deliverance. Oh, that's a dark one for it to be your favorite. That's a dark one to be your favorite. Well, I think that says more about you than it does yeah, about Burt Reynolds. Probably. <laughs> Hashtag awkward right there. Uh. From El Toro Studios, brought to you by ElToro.com, the only one-to-one, 100% cookie-free IP targeting solution. This is the Straight From The Bull Podcast. Welcome back to the sixth episode of the El Toro Podcast. My name is Kramer Caswell, and I am not sitting here today with David Stadler. He is on vacation. However, I am still sitting here with DJ Oz... So like I said, Stadler's on vacation, but filling in for him today is our favorite six foot six branding connoisseur, Jason Lair. Jason, oh, welcome to the podcast. I don't even know how you do this with Stadler. That's just that's just a true work of art to, be able to <laughs> sit alongside that genius. Yeah, I know, Love isn't him. it? Love that guy. It's gonna be kind of weird sitting without him. I'm used to him right here. So uh Jason. I have to give you some credit here because (laughs) whether you know it or not, this podcast is sort of kind of your doing. Oh, God. Uh, Thanks, Jason. It's my fault. It is your fault. So (laughs) Sorry about that Apple iTunes. (laughs) (laughs) Probably like, let me think, probably about six months ago now. Yeah. uh, You were talking about how El Toro needs to be a thought leader in the industry. And so I kind of took that to heart. And there you go. So we focused first on the website, getting that up to speed, and then we kind of moved into our blog. Bada bing, bada boom, here we are with the podcast. So I give you all credit well, for this podcast, sir. Uh, I just was just trying to spark some thought. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's such an amazing group of talent here that when it comes to being able to establish credibility and the technology is so fantastic, but the people behind it, the thinking behind it actually adds a lot to the overall experience. So I'm glad you guys are uh, rocking it out, and I'm honored to be a part of this uh, this episode. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I really like the podcast, so kind of breaks up the week, and yeah, it's awesome. So as you know, we like to drink some bourbon here at El Toro. That's so you thing. picked, you actually picked the bourbon today. Yeah. You want to talk about it? It's actually not a bourbon, it's rye. So it's, uh, it's Peerless. Get it right, Kramer. Sorry. Yeah, come on, man, for goodness sake. Uh, so Peerless actually, not that long ago, was recognized as the number one rye whiskey in the world. Uh, and it's actually made about six blocks from here really? at the Peerless Distillery. Where is that? Um, it's actually, uh, it's just down Main Street. I mean, it's at Main, th- Main and like 9th, I think, Street. Huh. So um, one of the guys that uh, used to I work with me, much, it's, it's okay. It's it's. Um, <laughs> We always encourage responsible consumption, but that's uh, it's fantastic. But Peerless, so these guys, they've, they've done everything really right. So they started this product uh, a few years ago where they laid down some, some you know, grain alcohol that was mm-hmm. fermented and became what it was, the base of this rye whiskey. And when they did that, um, they actually made uh, vodka and gin, I think, or moonshine for a while while it was aging. So this is actually a two-year-old rye that won the best rye whiskey whiskey in the world, and it is fantastic. And it's a beautiful, uh, the bottle itself is fantastic. It looks super And one of the guys that used to work for me, uh, Cordell Lawrence, is their head of marketing, who's just an awesome guy, and just so exciting to see what 
what he's doing with that group and how the product itself is just fantastic. They are pretty close to also having a bourbon that will be coming out here shortly if it hasn't oh, already. Awesome. So it's uh, it's top notch, and the, the the bottle is fantastic. It's a heavy bottle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it retails looks, for about one hundred twenty five bucks, and it's uh, it's it's super awesome. All right, well, don't tell Stadler we're drinking this because it's probably supposed to be off limits. <laughs> All right, true. cheers, cheers, cheers. cheers. Mm. So when I do bourbon tastings uh, in today's world, I'll typically will include Peerless just to show the difference between a rye because rye is a little bit, a little bit harsher, got a little mm-hmm. bit more of a kick to it. Um, it's just the difference between if you think about rye bread and wheat bread. Uh, but the That's beauty of the beauty of mm-hmm. rye whiskey is that when it comes to old fashions, if you're not using a rye, you probably should be because it just truly is where all the flavor can really rock it out. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I like rice. This is going to be bad, but I like rice probably a little bit more than bourbons. Personally, personally, I'm with you. I mean, it's just there's so much, you can get so much more so much more complexity out of a yeah, rye. Yeah, this you one's can. really good. I haven't yep. had it before. I've had the Angel's Envy rye. Yeah, that used to be really one of my good favorites. Product. Yeah, yep. nice. I noticed awesome. that you have some uh, chocolate over there, and Kramer mentioned that well, sometimes you taste yeah, you have chocolate. A, you have a very interesting. Well, process for when you taste bourbon. Well, the tastings are fantastic, and I've I've been fortunate to do, I don't know, over a hundred or so tastings in my life, in my years, because I, before here, um, before I went to Inspire Brands and, and my time at El Toro, I was at Brown Foreman for a while, so got to know a lot about bourbon tastings in the process, and with with tastings, when you add things like chocolate or Parmesan cheese uh, to the tasting, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, what? But then whenever you actually go through the process, the way that you can introduce flavors and wood notes versus floral notes, it's it's just it's a totally different experience. And when you have that piece of dark chocolate that you take a bite of and then taste the bourbon after it, it tastes like a completely different product. Yeah. It's, it's really cool the way that you can kind of pull those notes out. And it's totally different than a wine because... Here you're talking about 40% alcohol versus around, I don't know, 15% alcohol. Mm. So there's a little bit more bite to it, but I think there's also more complexity. You do something else that's interesting that I'd never seen before, where you take a little bit of the bourbon and put it on your hand. Yeah, and then you rub, rub it in together. your hands and then, yeah, because you want it to like, and then you kind then of you put it over it, your right? nose and smell it because it really helps to open your olfactory senses. And <laughs> your nose is such a huge part of the process that whenever it starts to pull out notes that you didn't know before... It's just a fun way to do it. And plus, it's the best hand sanitizer in the world, uh, you know, <laughs> when you pour true, a little bourbon yeah. in your hands. That so is true. It's I'll kind s- of a win-win situation for everybody. You uh, you must have showed Dan, uh, one of the founders here, that <laughs> uh, that trick, because I saw him showing one of the clients, and I was like, man, he's punking these guys. <laughs> like, why are they rubbing no, this it's, bourbon it's, on it's their hands? It's a real thing. And actually, I, um, I learned it from Chris Morris, who's about as, as good a bourbon taster as you'll find on planet Earth. And he talks about it a lot because there, the other piece to it is that beyond just rubbing it in your hands and getting your olfactory senses going, whenever you actually do a tasting, just like with a bottle of or a glass of, of red wine, whenever you scroll it around and open up the notes and give, get some air in it, yeah. that's the last thing that you want to do with bourbon. Instead, with bourbon, you just take a little drop of water and put a little drop of water in it, and that will open up the notes in a totally different way. Huh. Um, so, and people are like, you know, and, and, and you get like purists who are like, I don't want any water touching my bourbon or any ice touching my bourbon, but the ice is actually a good thing because it'll slowly open up and give it a different, expect, uh, different experiences in the, in the long term. It's just, it's, it's, that's the, the fun part about whiskey tasting itself, whether it's bourbon or scotch or yeah. 
Japanese so whiskey. There is a right way to taste bourbon, though. Totally, okay. totally. Yeah, I mean, and it's. And, but the beautiful thing is the the right way is your way because as long as you're drinking <laughs> yes, it, that's I'm all that matters. Because <laughs> bourbon at the at the end of the day, bourbon is the official spirit of the United States. So mm-hmm. we can't lose sight of that fact. Just like Scotch in Scotland and Japanese whiskey in Japan, it's just we bourbon's our thing. Yeah. So God bless America. And Kentuckys. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So for people that are listening that don't know Jason, you used to sit here at El Toro. I did. Um, so let's go back a little bit farther. Sure. Tell us a little bit about your history Oh man! and, and how you ended up <laughs> well, sitting at El Toro for a little bit and then what you're doing now. You know, the, the, the thing about this, especially in the world of digital, which is where I got my start back when I helped launch the Camping World online catalog. My old, the guy that I was working with at, at uh, Camping World when I was a sophomore in college in 1994, um, we launched this Camping World online catalog at a time when websites were not anything what they are today. And we oh, had yeah. a Netscape Livewire server running in the back <laughs> overflow room <laughs> of a of the call center at Camping World that they would use during Christmas time. And that's that's how we launched the whole thing. And when I left a few years later, it was about 25% of the catalog business and percentage of sales. So it was kind of a big thing. And I thought, gosh, this is pretty awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and I, and I always stayed with it. And, and the digital pieces were such a great foundation because as the 90s led into the 2000s, um, I launched, uh, did, did a lot of work with, with uh, Humana, uh, built out their digital team from a very, very small group of about three or four of us to when I left, there were... Oh my God! Probably seventy or eighty um, that oh, we wow. had in the That's team, awesome. nice. and uh, in a very short amount of time, and had—I mean, I've been very fortunate to be on some patents for work that we did, and you know, we went into a space when when the uh, Medicare prescription drug plan was being launched, and literally it was a wild, wild west, and we enrolled something like three hundred thousand Medicare eligible consumers via the interwebs, mm-hmm. Good Lord. and these are like you know grandparents and. You know, it was an interesting time because we actually targeted communications to the adult children for these Medicare Medicare eligible consumers, and it worked out famously. How were you doing that back then? Um, back then, it was um, it wasn't nearly as advanced the targeting that you see today, but because a lot of it was online uh, through email, a little bit of some display, and and keywords were a huge driver. Google was probably the the vast majority. Yeah, of that's it. when PPC was cheap um, too, right? And it was it was early days for a lot of things. Yeah, and then. Um, you know, I did that for a while. I actually worked on the agency side for a while through an organ, uh, through a company called MadPal. It's that's based in Boston, who is just a phenomenal user experience design agency. And I built their Louisville office and um, did a lot of work in the healthcare space. But then some fun clients outside of that, which one of which happened to be Brown Foreman. And at uh, at, at a point in time, they. Uh, <laughs> Brown Foreman actually, um, as they were going through some regime changes, um, they saw the opportunities in the work that we're doing on the digital side, and they basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse and said, well, why don't you join us full time? So I was actually, believe it or not, traded for three cases of whiskey. Um, <laughs> so and, and Bad Pal, uh, Will Pally and Amy Cueva, who are just people that I just still adore to this day, uh, when I told them, I said, hey, Brown Foreman's made me this offer, and I'm probably going to have to join. They go. That's fine. Uh, I mean, we hate to lose you, but we kind of felt like this was going to happen. But uh, we'll make it. We'll make it whole because I didn't have a contract with them technically. But they go. We'll make it whole if uh, 
you get us uh, three cases of whiskey as a result of this. And I said, sure. So luckily it was Jack Daniels, Gentleman Jack, and Woodford Reserve. So nice. that was at least in the super premium category. So no offense to early times and on and you know on Canadian Mist, but at least I got at least at least they got good value out of me. That's awesome. And uh, and Brown Foreman was a great run. You know, that was uh I led uh, a variety of different shared services. So, like, I, I looked after um, media, e-commerce, consumer research, insights, um, digital. Uh, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of around 300 Facebook presences alone for Jack. I mean, it was ridiculous because this is at the time when a lot of this was also being created. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so having all these different areas and connecting the dots globally, having teams in eight different countries, having – you know, the the digital compliance piece, which is a huge part of our lives and an amazing team that looked after that. And, um, you know, as I, there were, they liked to do their, um, <laughs> there was a, several reorgs that, that the organization was going through with, with change is a big part of that. So mm. at, at one, at, as that change was happening, I ran into Dan and, uh, um, you know, he's like, why don't he's like, why don't you just come work with us? And uh, and it was great. You know, I jumped in, and here's chief strategy officer, doing a lot of work with not only on what we're trying to do on the sales side, but also with Rich and the team, and it came to product design and things that we were building, evolving that continue to happen to this day. And um, you know, and it's it's one of those things that seeing the evolution, seeing how fast it was changing, it was great. And still being in contact with Dan, it's just, it's, it's fantastic to see the work that you guys continue to do. And it's great yeah. to be able to come back here and, and you know what, and, and as it turned out, I got an opportunity. I, I couldn't really refuse to work with some very, very close uh, friends and, and contacts at Inspire Brands where I'm at now. So at Inspire, it basically the company was created back in February this year, which uh, we own Buffalo Wild Wings, Arby's and Our Taco. Uh, Rusty Taco, which is a, a smaller footprint than the thousand or twelve hundred mm -hmm. stores of Buffalo and three thousand Arby's, but um, you know it's it's um, handling media there for across and all, building a capability, sitting alongside the exec, you know, being a part of the executive team that's creating what is Inspire Brands, both culturally, uh, technically, uh, technology driven, data strategy group that we are, and it's just been awesome. Yeah. So I, I would venture to say, you know, I mean, obviously you have a breadth of experience. You have a really good insight into branding sure. and storytelling. I think that's one of the hallmarks. I think that's one of the things that I took away from your time being here at El Toro because you came in probably three or four months after I started and I was just some kid off the street that <laughs> came in and <laughs> started working here and uh, you took the time to really... Yeah, help me grow, and so I appreciate that. But uh, I love I love your take on branding and some of the yeah. things that you you've left a lasting impression on me. Well, and, and part of the th when you think about the, the the challenge and opportunity that sits in front of a company like an El Toro and and other technology companies for that matter, but especially when it comes to the startup view of companies. Sometimes you can get truly in love with your technology so much that you lose sight of exactly what it is you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And part of that is being able to package the story because, like El Toro, I mean, we, I, mean I, I still talk to Dan about this whenever we hook up to this day. It's like you have such great technology, but it's, there's, a, there's a, a barrier to the understanding behind that because it's so advanced and so yeah, powerful and, yeah. that – there's a there's a narrative there that that continues to evolve, and it's uh, it's hard to really capture that because as a, both a brand and a technology, uh, you know, you're trying to establish what's great for the immediate term, but also building for something that's much longer. Yeah. 
So, in your opinion, what what really makes a, a good story yeah. for, for a brand? Well, you know, and it's it's so it, it's different in the world. I think of of services and and products because. Part of it is like that bottle of Peerless Whiskey right there. I can pick that up and there are immediate cues to the story that call out without saying anything. Mm -hmm. um, services, it's a little bit harder. And I remember going through this in the Humana days because it's intangible. You can't really touch it and I can't experience it. It's yeah. I get it because I go to the doctor's office and I try to get something and is it covered or not? And so it's just it, your, your experience with the brand is different. So yeah, yeah. that context is so critical. And you know, when it comes to the storytelling piece to this, and, and I, I definitely am biased because I, I, I do teach a class at UofL in their master's program called Digital Disruption and Modern Media. And one of the topics is storytelling. And we talk about what makes for a great story. And there's there's a few things that come to life. There's this notion of kind of, you know, there's there's novelty, meaning, and relevance, which are the kind of the first three things that I look at when it comes to good stories. So, you know, novelty is it, is it going to make me laugh? It's going to make me smile. Is there some meaning behind it? So there's actually something that's actually a value. And when you think about the notion of social currency these days, and is me telling the story actually going to give me some cred? And people are like, huh, that's a really cool story. Yeah. And then relevance to make sure that you know when it comes to the stories that are being told, do they connect back to the brand that's been that, that you're trying to establish as a part of that? And you know, the other thing is is originality, so, which I think is something that people can get lost on when it comes to a good story. Because think about the movies today and how many remakes <laughs> yeah, there are. Yeah, like remakes. And, and it's like, that. that's why I have such an appreciation for, you know, a, a guy like Quentin Tarantino who starts with a blank piece of paper and is like, what is this story that I, I want to create? Tarantino. And 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 yeah. Wes Anderson is another one who's probably my all-time favorite because the stories are so different and they're so unique and they're so original and there's a lot to be said for that. And and I think that it goes back to there's maybe three stories at all in the world that exist that everything riffs off of. But there's just some originality that, that that's truly uh, appreciative. And then the, the last thing is just authenticity. And authenticity these days, it's funny when you – there's a, a tool inside of Google to look at, at trends of use of words over time. Mm -hmm. And authenticity yeah, going that, yeah. back to like the 1700s or whatever was super high – and when you look at literature and what's been printed, and then as it goes down over time, it slowly creeps down. But then starting around the 40s or so, it starts to come back up. And now it's a huge part. And everybody's claiming authenticity and doing that. And there's a book called The Authentic Brand, which has a really good quote that I've used in class before that talks about authenticity is, you know, something worthy of belief and trust and neither false nor unoriginal. In short, genuine and original, which is so simple um, I'm a huge golfer, and, and I, I think about authenticity as something that's like, uh, there's a quote that uh, um, I think it was uh, Gary Player that talks about golf, or Arnold Palmer that talks about golf, where he says, it's something that's so delightfully simple, yet incredibly complex. Mm. And and it's like, put this white ball in this, in this cup, and that's all we got to do. And so authenticity, it's like, sure, just be genuine and original. But getting there is so <laughs> incredibly yeah. complex, because... You just, you know, when it comes to being able to open your doors and actually be genuine and show this is what I am in real, that's, that is not easy to do. And um, the one reference that I use a lot is there's this thesis that this Syracuse student wrote about Nike trying to get into the world of skateboarding. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's something like Nike and the swoosh and skateboarding. And it talks about how Nike for years tried to crack the nut on skateboarding and tried to get into that space and got shut down so many times. 
And part of it was they were doing so in such an inauthentic, unoriginal way that they felt they could get to the masses. That that's that that particular audience is so. If you're a poser, if you're somebody that's coming in trying to you know true get in and and do the, the cheapest, fastest way, you're gonna fail every time. And they finally got it right because they started to do those things. Days. Yeah, they, they, I, they started to do things specifically for shops, different from what yep. you would see at like an Urban Outfitters. Yeah, because I was just a different experience. I wouldn't say I was a skater. I didn't skateboard, but I was. I rode motocross, so it's yeah. kind of in that you know extreme sport realm. And I remember when Nike 6.0 came out, that was like mm-hmm. the big breakthrough, and everybody started wearing yeah, it. And, I and love Nike 6.0. And, and, and it's just, and yeah, they've, it's I, good... I, I personally, when I see where they're at today and the evolution that's happening in sneaker culture, I honestly think a lot of that goes back to that learning around that world of skateboarding. Yeah. Because if mm-hmm. you were not authentic, if you didn't get this right, that audience is so fickle. And it's one of the things that I, I even to this day, when I'm traveling in cities I've never been in, I'm always curious to go check out a skate shop. I was a big skateboarder growing up, so I yeah, just have yeah, such yeah. an appreciation for that culture. And it is one to where it's like, if you're not genuine, if you're not an authentic yeah, in that space, don't want it. Yeah. Yeah, they don't want it. And and you're going to get rejected every time. And and it's hard because it's such a niche versus where kind of everything is going today mainstream-wise. Yeah. Now, do you think that as a culture, like, it's just harder for corporations or businesses or people to be authentic or... Have we become more cynical, and and do people want to break apart and pull apart businesses more? Well, I, you know, the, I think part of the challenge is, is that the role of brand is changing, and where people relied on brands for a very long time, you're starting to see this change in these direct-to-consumer brands like an Allbirds that doesn't need the mass distribution of a Dick's Sporting Goods or a Walmart or a Target to get things done. I can go directly to you. You kind of saw it, you know, a couple of years ago with Dollar Shave Club. Mm-hmm. But that direct-to-consumer model, people are like, listen, if you give me a great product that's valuable to me, that lasts, that's quality, that's all that, and I can go directly to you, have that conversation with you, do more things that are maybe a little bit more custom, give you a little bit more information because I build trust with you, and then you start to build some things more for me. It's disrupting just about every industry and every category out there. And... So the role of brand is changing, but the thing is, is that brands still do exist and they're still important because the one thing that when you think about the the mass scale of where some brands are going and are getting to, it's about making sure that they can have that repeatable success. Because really to me, a great brand is really about repeatable success. Yeah, and yeah. I, I can tell you that you know my experiences in the Jack Daniels world, whether I was in Azerbaijan or in Sydney or in... Guadalajara or wherever, if I opened that bottle of Jack Daniels, it was going to be the same product that I knew and loved. And every time, yeah. without mm-hmm. that consistency was always there. And it also sets a mark when it comes to the premiumization of that and, and being able to build for what is a premium product. But brand to me is just, it's still a real thing. And, and, and frankly, I think more than ever, it's actually more important now than it's ever been because brands are seeing themselves go from just that bottle of Peerless right there to when I go to the distillery, if I see that that's tagged, so you see a lot of line extensions, you see a lot of branding where people will want to borrow the equity off of a brand like like Woodford. You see the, the bars that are out there that are Woodford branded bars. Mm-hmm. You're setting an example and you're setting a re- point in reference that people are like, oh, I see that brand and what do I think? There's quality, there's consistency, there's premium. 
And so being able to, to kind of go in and out of that and drift off of that is important. And that's why I think you're going to continue to see brands, but how they come to life is changing at such a dramatic yeah, yeah. scale. Well, so I, to follow that up, I have another question because the branding is very much alive, but how, how does branding today kind of work closely with like digital strategies? Sure. Because... I think we're. I think it's a really interesting topic of discussion, and I know there's a ton of blog posts of people talking about how do I, how do I bridge the gap between digital advertising and still speaking the language of our brand. Sure. Uh, can well, you talk on that? You know the 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 thing about what you see today is is that the barriers to entry are really starting to get smaller and smaller when it comes yeah. to how new brands get established. I mean, you think about a brand like Allbirds who gets started in doing Facebook advertising and doing some very, very highly targeted, highly nimble, highly personalized forms of advertising mm -hmm. and how that market share is able to grow because people start to talk about it. They start to reference it in other content, whether that be blogs or, you know, doing things very guerrilla in that exercise. But you know, today's brand building world, the the ability to get to that scale pretty quickly is right there. And it, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I can just, you know, it, it's not super simple, but the, the building blocks are there when it comes to seeing how others have done it. So in, in my point of view, when I think about where the where brands are going and, and, and how important it is when it comes to the role of digital marketing in this in this case, the thing that's of particular significance is the role of content in that storytelling. Yeah. And so um, I'm storytelling about this brand and, and for something, you know, whether that be if I, it was, if I was starting a new energy drink or I was, you know, starting another, you know, service along, you know, that, that could be uh, whatever technology or, or whatever new offering. It's truly about establishing the credibility of that. And one way to do that is to go onto Medium, start a, start a, uh, a profile on Medium and start mm -hmm. writing about my product. Started, start getting some feedback from others and taking that feedback in. That's where, like, Kickstarter, when it comes to, th you think about how brands are being created there every day, they extend that because they start there, but it starts with a lot of writing because you get the updates on the product. Mm. You get the videos and stories about the product. You get every step along the way as those products are coming to life. And it seeds with you a connection that then you can extend into how I'm talking about the continued evolution of the product when it comes back to my site and my, you know, my personal, the site that I own when it comes to the e-commerce side of it. Mm -hmm. So that's where you, you know, that's why I just love to spend time just taking a look at things like Kickstarter um, and, and and just seeing what else is out there yeah, because it's like you can authentic see what, stories. And, it, and it's yeah. literally these guys end up great ideas. I actually just ordered a, uh, a board game that was off of it for the girls at, and I'm getting updates about, you know, we did this, this is different, we changed these coins out. And there's a, an, a relationship that's building there. Because at the end of the day, those brands, any brand is wanting to establish a great relationship with its consumers. And if I can do so without many layers in the middle, layer, my last name, without many, <laughs> without many, uh, any, many barriers yeah. between me and that consumer. Because if you think about it in my, in my uh, spirits days, you know, we as the manufacturer of the product, the creator of the product, went through a distributor who went through a retailer who eventually got it to a consumer. So there's two, three steps in the middle there in most markets. If I can eliminate those and I can go straight and have the conversation with you, A, I'm getting so much more data around you. I'm getting, there's so much more value to that, both in the immediate term and in the long term, because when I want to make a new product, mm -hmm. 
the first people I'm going to consult are going to be the people that are existing ones and say, here's some examples. Here's test this out. What do you think of this? Because I've got a pool to work with there to help craft what my long-term strategy looks like. So brand plays a huge role in that because it's it's connecting those dots in a big way and it's getting me closer to that consumer. And digital can do that in ways that other forms just can't. I mean, it's... Yeah. and. And it's just when you look at the efficiencies on the cost of yeah, it, it's so much I cheaper. can get direct cost benefit analysis to understand, hey, I invested this and I netted this out of it. Mm -hmm. And that and even for CPGs and some others that there may be part, uh, steps in between, there's still good ways to understand what the value is and the return of what I'm investing. Gotcha. Let me ask you this because I listen to a podcast a lot and his name's Gary Gary V. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you probably he's, know Gary. He's, Amazing guy. Uh, yeah, I love his podcast. Um, he had a question that somebody asked him, so I kind of want to ask you: What would be your your top tips for people that are starting a company or starting a, a business online? What would be some of your top tips moving into uh, uh, their branding strategy online? Well, you know, the if you think about it, so I, I come from a, a background where you've got some of the traditional. Um, I guess probably all initiated with PNG, who's, who's just a, a master at when it comes to the the traditional theses and and um, and just approaches to building a brand mm -hmm. and you know things like the OGSM model. Um, you know, I, I'm very familiar with the work around brand triangles, and some of these are just are, are tools, but they're just really solid because what it does is you're organizing your thoughts around. Who the hell am I as a brand, and mm -hmm. what do I stand for? How do I differentiate myself? So things like the like getting to your brand promise. So my brand exists to blank X, yeah. uh, based on a, an insight from a consumer's perspective. Um, you know, there's a thing that I used to do with um, with my staff at, at both at Brown Foreman and then also a little bit with the Humana side, which actually was was some uh, extensions off of the. Uh, uh, work that was done within, uh, if you're familiar with Google Ventures, yeah. they have a, um, you know, there's a consulting arm that's actually connected into Google for these for the folks that they invest in where they get access to the resources. But um, there's this technique called uh, the molecule, and it's a very simple exercise where you're basically having three dots. But ultimately what it stands for is, you know, the user, the problem, and how my product solves that problem. It's a very simple model, but it basically says, you know, this user, and I describe it as much in detail as I can, the problem that they face and how my particular solution helps to, or how my particular offering yeah. helps to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And when you think about that and connect it back into the brand triangle around elements like I exist to do this, targeting this audience, you're just breaking it down to understand truly who it is you're trying to reach, what it is you've got to talk to them about, and the context of which you can reach them. Um, when you break it down to its molecular level, the way that I, I, I teach it to my classes is you've got three, three dots. Um, you've got the audience, you've got the message, and you've got the medium with which you're going to reach them. Very, very simple stuff. But it's literally, as a brand, once I get into the communication side, this is what I want to follow. So you've got your brand triangle and the elements of it, and then your communication strategies. And digital plays a role really on both of those because the brand itself, what digital can do is get you immediate reach. It can get you um, a global footprint in a matter of no time. Yeah. But you've got to know who you are. It's the hardest part because it's one thing to go out and build content and do all this, but 
if you don't know who you are as a brand, none of it matters. Yeah, and that's a that, good that whole idea of the personality, who we are, the brand values, um, you know, the, the benefits that I can see uh, on the rational side, on how I feel about it, and then how I look as so how, how I'm recognized as a brand. Um, it's just truly organizing who you are mm-hmm. before you go out and try to engage somebody. Because if you don't have a great understanding of that as a brand, it kind of don't have a, a lot to stand on. Yeah, you don't it, really know what it, you're doing. It all goes back to, as you said earlier, authenticity. Because, yeah. I mean, you can fool somebody once, but <laughs> to be a brand. Well, I mean, that's that's the difference between renting consumers and being able Because any, anybody will take up an offer. You can get anybody with an offer or get mm-hmm. some sort of a hook to get them in. Mm-hmm. But to get them in there and keep them for the long term, that takes a totally different level of engagement and a totally different level of trust. And, you know, it's... That's the thing where you can really make or break when those, uh, especially if I'm, a, if I'm a Kickstarter project, I can get you over that hump one time, but if, how is that going to build that out going forward? And that's hard to do. That's awesome. I'm going to listen to this podcast over and over again just to understand, <laughs> just to get I more like insights from Jason Lair. I feel like I'm I get into wormholes. I love it. <laughs> well, we're actually, we're getting close to cutting it, yeah. so... Um, Jason, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my, 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 uh, my pleasure. Um, and when you talk about other references, one thing that I do want to call out, um, which is something that I, I read daily, is, uh, uh, is a guy, Ben Thompson, and he has a, uh, a blog and a website called Stratechery that is just phenomenal. And it's, it's the, I like uh, that name. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's the one thing that I try to read every day. Okay. Um, it is just a. It's a great resource. It's less about brand, but it's more about just the world of mm-hmm. digital right now and what's happening. And you know, like with Facebook and Twitter and Google on the Hill yesterday testifying <laughs> yeah. and the outputs of that. But it's just really good insight and, and strategy around what we're doing right now because brand plays a role in it every once in a while. But it's it's. Um, I look at it. I always see things through that lens of the brand whenever he's talking. Uh, because it's just it's it's about because like the connections of things like Spotify and brands that mm-hmm. didn't exist 10 12 years ago that are now just daily part of our lives. Awesome. His Google title is American Analyst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I tell you, you know, this is such a time of change because it is. Know, yeah, it, it really you is. You think about brands and how they're establishing themselves and the thing that I was reading the other day, I think it actually was one of his uh, things was talking about how you know behemoths like Spotify and Netflix and others that are looking to things like the Google Store, like iTunes, and saying, yeah, I don't think I really need you to do the processing of these payments. I think I can do this <laughs> on my own. I can do it own. myself, yeah. But think about going in and logging into Netflix and paying for your Spotify account there because they've got a relationship together. I mm-hmm. mean, that's what we're starting to see is that these whales as brands and experiences are starting to get, I mean, Spotify, and it's like, are you a label or not? Because like we're trying to figure that yeah, out right Spotify now. Spotify singles. It's just it, I tell you, it's just and, and it's super. And again, times. it goes back to the brand because now when I see that Spotify brand, it adds a whole new layer of of both biases that are already built in, but then also opportunities of what could be new that I would I would want to engage with. I mean, that's super that's opportunity, but also vulnerability because <laughs> it's like, it what is this brand? <laughs> But we won't we won't go into that. Exactly, that's we'll a little bit too much. Next time, next time, yeah. we'll have next to have time, part next two. time we'll get into the brain and how the different le- areas of the brain actually are affected by brands. Ooh, and, and that would be that's interesting. a whole other conversation. Professor Lair, we'll talk, Lair. Let's talk, let's talk that there. and why Jason. <laughs> There's not enough bourbon for that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you may have to why Jason bourbon. hates PowerPoint so much. That's another thing <laughs> well, we'll have to talk about. I don't hate PowerPoint. I just. 
people just try to do do too much with PowerPoint. It's <laughs> well, like now, well, am I am I presenting or am I doing a leave behind? Oh yeah, I've presented this 252 <laughs> slide PowerPoint with uh, eight yeah. paragraphs per slide. It happens, <laughs> kids these days. Wait, all there. right, everybody. Thank you so much for Thanks, listening man. to the seventh podcast. Wait, are we on the seventh? Yeah, you are. You're living in the future, buddy. Future. Oh, that's the next one. We're on the seventh. <laughs> we don't even. We don't. We're gonna have Stadler back here. A little here bit about number podcast, seven. So. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you back here next Friday on the El Toro Podcast. You've been listening to the Straight from the Bull Podcast from El Toro Studios, brought to you by ElToro.com, where we target people, not pixels. Come talk about brands, dude. Plug it.